you know, just as a quick recap, we're looking at Malachi as the last prophet of the um, of the Old Testament before the 400 years of silence, where uh, there are no prophets, no speaking of God, so to speak. And then we see, of course, we then open the pages of the, the New Testament to the Gospel, and we see John the Baptist, the true last prophet, who uh, proclaims to make way uh, for the the way of the Lord. And so as we look through Malachi, we recognize that there's some serious issues that God is dealing with through Malachi, through his people of Israel. Like all the other prophets, he was speaking uh, about the need for repentance, the need for uh, obedience, coming back to God. But what we have found is that the theme throughout this book, what we look at on a weekly basis in different ways, is just that. It is indifference. The people had grown indifferent in their uh, relationship with God, their worship of Him. Last week we talked about the priests, the religious leaders, offering uh, unacceptable sacrifices to God. And um, I think for many of us it was a hard-hitting message, especially for me, even preparing that and recognizing that how we handle the Word of God together, His um, commands of us, even being able to handle the wonderful and matchless grace of God through Jesus Christ. What do we do with our Christian liberties and freedom? How do we live that out? Are we offering a worship to God that is acceptable, that honors His name? And that theme really continues through the whole book, and so we'll see it this morning as God talks about specifically relationships, broken relationships, how he continues to talk to the people of Israel, but to us this morning about the problem of not glorifying him in how we live our lives, and specifically not honoring his name within the church body and then among the nations as we represent him to the people of the world, don't we? And so he wanted his priests to be holy and to do that. And so this morning we look at this next passage, just Malachi 2, it's verses 10 to 16. In just a moment it will be up on the screen, but you can turn to it. Just those few verses. It's all about broken relationships, specifically the marriage relationship. And so this morning we'll talk about divorce. Not a topic that um, we often want to talk about or to deal with, but it's a, a topic that all of us, in some way or another, have been affected by. And we're going to see what it is that God says about it. And to be honest, I might handle it a little differently than, than maybe what you've heard. We're going to look at some New Testament passages as well where Jesus talks about it. I'm not going to get into different scenarios when we think, some Christians think divorce might be you know, warranted or acceptable to God and when not. There's some verses we can look at and study together. But this morning, I think the focus goes even deeper in where the conversation needs to start. And that is the heart. Because that's what God's dealing with in Malachi. He's saying, where are your hearts? Your hearts have grown cold towards me. They have grown indifferent where you don't even hold my name with the honor you remember, and this is going to come up today too, so I have to bring this up again. Remember we talked about the difference, the, the comparison 
of the words despise and honor. Not two words that we use a lot these days, especially despise, excuse me. But even in context of one another. Because in Malachi, in the context of our passage, he says, you're despising my name. And the people say, how are we despising your name? That word despise means to hold lightly or to take something lightly, meaning that you just become flippant or apathetic or indifferent about something that should matter. But the opposite of that that is honor. He says, my name is to be honored. He keeps saying, I am the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven and earth. So when we give something honor, it means that we are giving it weight and value and significance. So God says, my name is to be honored because I am the God of the universe. I am your God. My name is not to be despised and just held lightly and thrown around with no regard. And he says, that's what you're doing. He's telling that to the people of Israel. You're doing that by offering the lame and the sick animals in worship. You're not even going through it the way I told you to. But this morning, these short verses talk about relationships. Yes, it's all about our relationship with God. But he says, in your worship and now in your marriage relationships. And we can also talk about that in our context, friendships, any kind of relationship we're going through. But he uses the marriage relationship, the marriage covenant, as an example of how the people had gone astray. And become indifferent. You know, one of the uh, the greatest privileges that I have of being a pastor is to perform a wedding. And I got to do many of those over the years, and I, I hope to continue to do that. And uh, some of the, the wonderful couples that I have um, had the privilege of performing their weddings are here in the church. And it's, it's such a great thing. I love it. I love to do it. I love to go through the whole planning process with the couple. Claudia and I start with doing... Um, a long time of pre-marriage counseling, as many times as we can, getting together with the young couple and going through practical things like, how are you going to handle your finances? And it's, it's funny to kind of see sometimes couples are like, oh, we hadn't really thought about that. I think money's kind of important, right? We talk about practical things like that. Do you want kids? Are you going to raise kids? How would you do that? But what we start with first is, we start with this idea of what is marriage. It seems simple. It seems like something we would all kind of just know inherently, right? But evidenced by our passage today and and what we know about relationships in our society and our world, many people, even Christians, have lost sight of the meaning of marriage. We actually use a book written by Tim Keller of uh, Redeemer Press in New York called uh, The Meaning of Marriage. It's a great way to introduce this idea of premarital counseling, getting you know, getting the young couple ready for that big day, right? Because it's so much more than just figuring out who's going to sit at the tables at the reception, right? Which crazy aunt and uncle are you going to put with these people? Maybe you have some friends that you, you, you have to invite them you don't like. We'll put them at that table. But there's so much more involved with that. So many more important things that need to happen coming up into that day, especially with a young Christian couple, recognizing what is God's true reason <coughs> excuse me, for creating the institution of marriage and instituting the marriage 
covenant. I want to use that word a lot this morning, covenant. Because, you know, a covenant is very different from a contract. And I think that one of the things that seems to be at the root of the issues in our world today regarding marriages and their success or failure is this idea that has crept in over the years that marriage is a contract. And we all know about contracts, right, in businesses. We know about verbal contracts, contracts that aren't even sort of signed or formal, but contracts that you make with somebody is something that both people sign and there's sort of an if-then thing. Like, if you do this, then this will happen. You sign a contract. When you sign a mortgage, the mortgage company is saying, if you pay us, you get to live in your house. Right? And if you don't pay us, if you break that, or if you're in breach of contract, guess what? We own the house. You have to leave. It's that kind of thing. There's an if-then. That's a contract. But in a contract, if one person or one party of the contract doesn't fulfill their end of the bargain, then that contract is usually null and void. See? But with a covenant, it goes so much deeper. Because a covenant is really based on the benefit of the other person. And we know with God, He makes an unconditional covenant. He started with Abraham. Remember, I went through that whole thing, that unconditional promise and covenant he made with Abraham. And he said, this is what I will do for you. I will give you a land, and I promise that. You will be the father of multitudes of people. You will be a blessing to the nations around you. And God made that covenant on his own. right? And Abraham was not a part of that. Remember that whole scene that I mentioned where he put Abraham to sleep to ratify that covenant? And God himself, walked through the two altars with the burning sacrifices. And that signified that it was God and God alone who was responsible to uphold this unconditional covenant. So there is a reason that we call marriage a marriage covenant and not a contract. Because too often that mindset of being in a contact contract with somebody is what leads us on that slippery slope. So let's think more in terms of our relationship with God, with a, with a marriage partner of a covenant where there is promises made. You enter into the covenant, most importantly, for the benefit of the other person. And it's unconditional. Have you ever said to a spouse, I love you unconditionally? You may hurt me at times. We know that we're Sinners, it's like one of the first things that we heard as a young couple, Claudia and I, that we tell young married couples, I've said that before, right? We say, first things first, you're marrying a sinner, right? What a way to start. But you want to set that foundation and recognize that. But even more reason to say, this is not a contract, this is a covenant relationship. And that is the theme all throughout Malachi. Let's not miss that. That God is saying, look, I have a special relationship With you, my people of Israel. It is a covenant relationship. It is a relationship that is a covenant formed and founded on love. And God wants the same thing in marriages. He wants the same thing. You know, um, as part of the marriage ceremony, you've all been to one, you've been married yourself, you know that there comes that time when the, um, the bride and the groom, they exchange vows, right? Sometimes they write them and sometimes they ask me to write them. They're too nervous to hold on to the card and remember it, of course. 
but they are nonetheless they are vows that are exchanged. Now just think about that. Just think about that for a moment. What is actually happening at that moment in the marriage ceremony? That they are making a vow to one another. They are entering into a covenant. Before myself as the pastor, before all the people that are witnesses, but before whom most importantly? Before God. It is a vow before God. Just let that sink in for a moment. In a marriage relationship, you are taking a vow before God. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, you are entering into a covenant relationship based on love. And it's God that did it for you. He didn't earn that. We talked all about that in grace, right? That it is through grace we have been saved through faith. By His grace, through our faith and accepting. But it's all from God. See that? And that's the same thing with the marriage relationship. In fact, that's the whole reason and purpose, I believe, behind God creating the marriage relationship. Yes, there's practical things about procreation and, and filling the earth. We know all about that and all the blessings that come along with the marriage relationship. But first and foremost, the marriage covenant is to be a reflection of God's love and the gospel, the good news, that God is a God of grace, love and compassion and forgiveness. And we as the church who are called the bride of Christ in this great relationship with Jesus, that He is preparing us. Do you see that? It's all throughout the Scripture. We see that. It's a beautiful picture. But why? Because first and foremost, going way back to Genesis, with Adam and Eve, the first marriage, so to speak, right? God performed that marriage in a way. And He brought the two together. Does He not say, the two shall become one? Right? We'll read that in a minute in, in Matthew as well. But what happens? The two become one. But there was somebody else, I believe, in attendance at that wedding. We'll get to that in a moment. Let's read this, Malachi 2, 10-16. All of that, you think about in the context as we read this. Have we not all one Father? This is Malachi speaking now. Has not God created us? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. And abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he he has no longer any regard for the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why doesn't he? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless 
to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, he covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Some strong words from Malachi to the word of the Lord. In some versions, I think it's actually, um, there's a better interpretation of verse 16, where it says to the man who does not love his wife but divorces her. That's true, it's saying that. But some of your versions probably say, I hate divorce, says the Lord of hosts, right? It's in there. You're wondering, why isn't he saying that? <laughs> well, I tell you, it's um, just sort of a side note, but there, that passage there, it's a difficult one to interpret in the Hebrew. It's just the way it is. But it seems like that truly the best interpretation is not the one that I just read. I think uh, the NASB has it, maybe the King James, others that say, I hate divorce. God is saying both. He says, I hate divorce. And he says, I despise the men who also want to get divorced and be faithless to their wife. And he says, for the man who does not love his wife, but he divorces her, he considers it like those men covering his garment with violence. You see, I'm kind of skipping around here, but what used to happen in that day is that men would wear a garment that represented that they were married. There was something that they wore outwardly that expressed that they were a married man. And what, of course, is supposed to come with a marriage relationship? Kindness, gentleness, love, compassion, forgiveness, right? All of that. But God is saying to these men in particular, you're going to divorce your wife. And what they were doing is that they were divorcing their Hebrew wives to marry pagan women. So that's why he talked in the first part of the passage about marrying a, a, um, a foreign god or women of a foreign god. See, they were intermarrying with the pagan nations, and God said, don't do that. Because he, he says here, well, what's the, the purpose of this, the ultimate goal, godly offspring, not only children, but that they would continue to be representatives of God and his covenant to the people around them. He said, if you're going to intermarry with godless people that don't follow me, how is that ever going to happen? How are you going to have kids? That, you know, How is this going to work that my name will continue to be honored throughout the whole world? Because it's that same theme. Like he said last week with the offerings, how is it that people are going to know that I am the Lord of hosts, that I am the God of heaven and earth, if this is how you're going to treat my worship and my relationships? And he says, look, I have instituted the covenant of marriage. He says it right there. In, uh, in verse 14. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. Because that was the specific thing that he was addressing. That men were divorcing their Hebrew wives to marry pagan women. God says, finally, I hate divorce. Now let's make this clear. All right? I truly believe in what the Word of God says. Because what he is doing is he's pouring out his heart here. I, I don't want to miss that. When he talked about worship in the last passage, when he talks about marriage and divorce, he's pouring out his heart. He's saying, this is not what I intended. This is not what I intended. You know, uh, if you turn to um, Matthew, it'll be up on the screen for you. Matthew 19, I believe it is. Jesus talks about, let's look about the Lord Jesus himself talking about marriage 
and divorce and about the marriage covenant. In Matthew 19, 3-10, he addresses it. And Pharisees came up to him. They tested him. They're always doing that, right? Here they go again, trying to test him. We'll get him this time. Yeah. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Hey, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Remember, these are the leaders. They knew the Old Testament. They knew their Scriptures. And Jesus answered, Have you not read? So right there, he's bringing them back. Like, he knows they know it, and they've read it. He's bringing back the Scripture to them. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He's bringing them all the way back to Genesis, right? And he said, Therefore, because of that, right? Because of God made them man and woman. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, quoting again Genesis, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he's answering their question with a question. He always does that. I think we should do that more. People ask a question, let me ask you this. But what does he do that for? He always does that to get to the heart of the matter, doesn't it? He knew they were trying to test him. He says, let's just get right to the, let's get right to the heart of it. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Where do we hear those words all the time? In a wedding, right? In a wedding. I get to say those words. It's great because they are entering into the bride and the groom, a marriage covenant, making vows before God himself. So they said to him, well, why then did Moses, going back all the way to Deuteronomy, why did he command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Send her away means divorce. So they're saying, why did God allow that and say you can give a certificate and Divorce is as he said to them, so Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Can we stop right there? Do you see what he's saying? What is Jesus saying? So powerful. Let's make sure we don't miss that. And they said, well, you just said it's because God created man and woman and Leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, the two become one flesh. Let no man ever separate that and and try to by any law or anything because the two are now one. How can you separate something that is one whole piece? And then the religious leaders say, yeah, but way back in Deuteronomy, they're, they're showing them, hey, what did Moses do? He allowed for it. Why is that, Jesus? He says, this is why. Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. He says, but you know what? From the beginning, that wasn't the way God intended it. That was not God's plan. See, God knew that there would be sin. He doesn't condone it. He doesn't want that. It's not His desire. But He knows that the heart of man is ultimately sinful. And we'll separate it. We see that here in this passage in Malachi. That they are just treating their marriage relationships like they did with worship. Just in different 
apathetic. It doesn't matter. I don't want this one anymore. I want that one. For whatever reason. That's why they asked him, is it okay to divorce for just any reason? Jesus says, well, Moses allowed it because your hearts are hardened. Because there's sin. Because there's sin, people will get divorced. That's what it is. But he says that was not God's intention. So look at what it says after that. And I say to you, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And then finally the last one. Then the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not even to marry. Curious. The disciples are saying, man, God really takes this marriage thing seriously, doesn't it? Maybe it's better for some people not even to get married because they won't be able to hold fast and true to that covenant. That's the whole idea. See, that teaching of Jesus in Matthew 19 is so important. Look at this other passage. It's just actually one verse. Back to the Old Testament to Hosea. If you remember that whole book, it's this picture of Hosea marrying a prostitute. Remember that? It's a whole picture of God's relationship with the people of Israel. And how through their sin, they have basically divorced God. Okay? What does God say? Because this is where I want to keep going with this. There is always hope. There's no way that I wanted to bring this message from God's Word and leave it there. Could you imagine just saying God hates divorce and say, okay, let's be on our way? But look at what Hosea says in that great picture. God is saying, I will betroth you to me forever. Is it not an everlasting, unconditional covenant? That is what God desires for marriage. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. You should write that down. You should write that down, that reference, Hosea 2.19. Because God is saying, look, you have broken our covenant. You have broken that relationship. Did that not happen with the fall with Adam and Eve? The first marriage I said earlier, it seems to me that there was one other guest at that very first marriage. There was God, in a sense, presiding over the marriage of Adam and Eve. The two shall become one. He brought, created them for it, brought them together. But there was somebody lurking in the shadows, wasn't there? And not just a short time later, we see Satan, the enemy, visiting Eve. We see what happens with both Adam and Eve. Because what happens? Sin enters the story. There is then this idea of doubt. There's pride. They're saying, no one should rule over me. Not even God Himself. I surely will not die if I eat of this fruit. I can disobey God without any consequences. But God set, He set right there from the beginning. His desire. He laid out His heart for His people. That the two shall become one. You know, I remember in the first, um, the second house that we bought, we were living, it was an old house built in 1910, 1912. And uh, maybe you've gone through this kind of home renovation project, but there were old plaster walls. It wasn't cheap, it was like this old plaster. And there was four layers of wallpaper. Did you ever have to go through that? Did you ever try to scrape through that? 
But the problem was, is that, of course, over the years, especially being plaster, that wallpaper was put up to be permanent. I mean, we don't normally put up wallpaper and say, I'm going to take this down in a few months and change it up, right? But it's put up to be permanent. And so that very, I mean, one layer after the other stuck to one another. And that final layer, as we're scraping, it was adhered to, had become one, basically, with that plaster. So we started scraping, and there were big holes in the wall. It didn't look so good. That was a difficult project. Why? Because something that was meant to be permanent, that had become one, that was not supposed to be separated ever, we were trying to separate. See? There's many illustrations we can use for that. When you're going to weave something together. We talk about sand, right? And do you ever notice, like, I love this thing, but in, in many um, marriage ceremonies, they'll have, like, the, the sand ceremony. And they'll have a, a, a nice big glass jar and two colored sands. And they will then, at a point in the ceremony, pour them together, right? Two different colors poured together, and it makes one. Once you do that, can you separate out those two colors of sand anymore? Can you pick out those grains of sand? No. The two have become one. You see what I mean? Not to be separated. That's what it signifies. So from the very first relationship, the very first time that we see in Scripture that God institutes the marriage covenant, He says this is not to be held lightly. That's why that theme continues. He says, you know what? My name is dishonored and despised and held lightly and thrown around. When you hold your relationships like that, whether it's a marriage relationship, a friendship, no matter what it is, when we hold that lightly and don't recognize what God has given, he says, that's not honoring of me. And specifically, he's talking about the marriage relationship You're supposed to be, he says, between two believers and followers of me, a light to the world, a representative of my gospel and my love for people. Because it's all about that relationship. When we honor God and honor His name, then we will give weight and value and esteem and reverence to our marriage relationships. But when we dishonor His name, we're thinking lightly of them, becoming apathetic and even indifferent. Uh, many of us are familiar with the um, the writer C.S. Lewis. Uh, he was a great Christian writer, and he wrote um, many you know good stories and allegories of the Christian life. And one of his most famous and popular works was called The Great Divorce. What's interesting about that, I had never read it, knew about it, but didn't read it, but He wrote that book, The Great Divorce, really about the nature of heaven and hell. It's a very interesting story about somebody who's kind of wallowing in hell. And in this story, it's not theologically accurate, but a a person would be able to go from hell to heaven. And he's talking about this bus trip, going to see and visit. But it's all about him exploring this idea of the separation of heaven and hell. Here's why he wrote it. He wrote it because there was a uh, very famous poet, William Blake, And he had written a book, or it was actually a a bunch of poems called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. See, so he had written this book a few years earlier, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And this guy was not a believer in God, not a Christian, and he had sort of his own moral compass. And 
was writing about how marriage, how heaven and hell are really compatible in many ways. And he talks, he calls it the marriage of heaven and hell. What's interesting is that William Blake wrote that in response to an actual a theologian's book simply called Heaven and Hell. So here's the theologian who wrote about the difference of heaven and hell. Then William Blake comes along as a secular poet and he says, no, I don't agree with that. I'm going to write a series of poems and call it The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Then C.S. Lewis comes along and says, not so fast. And he writes a book called The Great Divorce. Why? To remind people of the vast chasm between separation from God for all eternity and the marriage covenant, that everlasting relationship between us and God through Jesus Christ. Heaven and hell. So he calls it what? The great divorce. Because William Blake, the poet, had called his the marriage of heaven and hell. And C.S. Lewis says, look at this. It's all about the relationship has been broken. But here is the hope. The hope is this. And this is probably the most important part. That God is a God of restoration. Is that true? Thank you, brother. God is a God who makes all things new. We see in Isaiah 43, I think it is, God says, I can bless you in many ways. I am going to save you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to bless you. Because I am the God who can make streams of water in a dry and barren desert. I'm the God that can make a way in the wilderness. I can make it happen. God's heart for our relationships, God's heart for marriage, is always restoration. Does it always work that way? It does not. But God's heart and desire is that we recognize that in every relationship, and ultimately our personal relationship with God, that that covenant relationship we have in Him through Christ, it's always about restoration. And that's something that we need to recognize on a daily basis. For when we fall and fail, isn't God good and gracious and willing to forgive that we would come back to Him? See, God, God's about reconciliation, about redemption, about restoration. He can do that in your relationships. He can do that in your marriage. Again, does it always work that way? No. There's many factors that go into it. That's not the point of this conversation. But what we need to know is the heart of God. His desire is that marriage is forever. That it is an everlasting covenant. It's holy. It is something that God has instituted. instituted. He has ordained it. And it's His desire that it would be, as we say in those vows, till death do us part. But God is in the restoration business. He makes all things new. There are consequences to sin. The consequence to broken relationships is ultimately that His name is not honored. Because that's what He's talking about here. He says, you're dishonoring My name. I am not going to be glorified in your relationship, in your church, in your family, in your country, and among the world. To those that still need to hear the Gospel, if you are not holding with honor and weight and value 
and esteem, your relationship with me, and as a picture of that, your marriage relationships. So don't we want ultimately to glorify God? Is that not as we say the chief end of man to bring glory to God in all that we do? That's supposed to happen in our relationships as well. So God is calling out the people of Israel and He's reminding us this morning. He's saying, look, I hate divorce. It's not my intention. It's not something that I put in as a qualification. I recognize, He says, that you are broken people. Without Jesus Christ, we are broken. Until that day that He returns for us and we get our glorified bodies, right? And that weight of sin and that total and complete effect of sin is done away with. Until then, we struggle with that. We struggle with that in any kind of relationship. But God says, I want you. I want you. And Hosea, He says, I will bring you back to me. I will betroth myself to you forever. He says, I can't love you more than I love you right now. But with God, there is always hope. Do you believe that? With God, there is always hope in any relationship, but especially in your relationship with Him. No matter where you are today, in your heart, you can come before God and just say, God, I'm sorry. Whatever it is that you know that you are doing or have done, to disappoint Him, to dishonor His name, remove glory from Him, and He is faithful and just to forgive because He is a God of love and compassion and a God restoration. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how good you are. We thank you that you are a God who is serious about the things he creates. And God, you want us to be too. So Lord, help us take this opportunity to uh, reflect and to take an account of where we are in our journey with you and being able to trust you. All that we have, including those important relationships, those people in our lives. God, we say thank you for those beautiful people that you've brought into our lives and what they mean to us. But God, help us to hold them in high esteem. When we make a vow, recognize we are to keep it. To seek you when there is brokenness. Because God, you through Jesus Christ have brought hope to this world. But God, help us to remember that you are truly the only hope. Help us to live it out, not only in our marriages, but the way that we speak, the way that we, we carry ourselves, the things that we do, the way that we serve and help each other, God, that the world would see and know that we are ones that love you because of the hope that you have given us. Thank you for restoring our broken relationship with you through the blood of Jesus Christ. God, for anyone here this morning who does not yet know that as truth and has trusted in that for their their eternal forgiveness of sins, God, would today be the day of salvation. God, continue to work in hearts and minds. That is you. That is what you do best. God, we look forward to that day when we will see you face to face and, and we get to be around that marriage feast of the Lamb, that great table. But until that day, we want to represent that relationship here on earth and in this church. God, know that we love you. We cannot do that without you. We thank you. In the name of Jesus.